We're proud to support Living on Earth and hope you will too. Donate at LOE.org. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Winter Solstice is upon us, and we mark the event with fiction, fantasy, and fable on the creation of the season. Stephanie! Mother Demeter! Stephanie! And so, that day, Kotura, the lord of the winds, pulled back the winds. He had been appeased, and his people were saved. A very funny thing happens. Whenever you tell these stories, children always say, is this a story, or is this what really happened? And you're faced with the idea of what's the difference between science and folklore. I'm not sure. Storytellers Judith Black and Guy Peartree spin tales of the natural world and the way it came to be. Our annual celebration of storytelling is just ahead, this year marking the darkest time and the shortest days and the eventual triumph of the light. That's this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is an encore holiday season edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The winter solstice is, of course, the shortest day of the year, coming around the time in December that the poet John Donne calls the year's midnight. Here in the Northern Hemisphere, as Donne puts it, the sun is spent, creeping above the horizon for barely nine hours. Latin gives us the word solstice. Roman astronomers noticed that as the sun, Sol, climbs to its highest point in the sky, it seems to stand still or stop, sistera. And though it can be bitter and cold as well as dark, this is also a time to celebrate. Now the days start to get longer, and the good old reliable Earth is back on its way to giving much of the northern hemisphere more than 15 hours of daylight by the end of June. So, you probably remember that the reason our days change length is because the Earth tilts at an angle to the Sun. The planet leans slightly on its axis like a spinning top frozen in an off-kilter position. So as the Earth orbits the Sun, the northern hemisphere goes from inclining towards our star at the summer solstice to inclining away from it at the winter solstice. And the Earth also wobbles a bit on its axis. So over millennia, the dates of the seasons actually switch. Right now, the axis is pointing at the North Star, Polaris. But in another 10,000 years or so, it will be pointing at Vega, the brightest star in the constellation Lyra, the musical lyre. Then winter for the Northern Hemisphere will begin in June rather than December. But not to worry, winter will be back to December 10,000 years after that. Of course, the ancients had their ways of explaining winter, and we'll hear some of them today. We start with storytellers Judith Black and Guy Peartree and musicians Stan Strickland and Sid Smart. They all appear in this encore presentation of a program recorded live at WGBH Boston a number of years ago that dipped into the folk and animal lore around the change of the season. So throw another log on the fire, sit back, and enjoy. Our theme today is the coming of the solstice, the turning of the year through its shortest day, wintertime, and living through it. 
What better way to begin than the classic Greek myth of winter, Persephone and Demeter? Judith Black is a storyteller with 20 winters of experience weaving stories for adults and children. She teaches and performs all over the country and has a long list of awards to her name. Welcome, Judith Black. Hi, Steve. Persephone and Demeter is one of those why things are stories. In this case, why there is a winter. From Judith Black now, Persephone and Demeter. Demeter, the goddess of all that grew, had hair as thick and dark as the earth, eyes like pools of water, skin as soft as the silk that grew at the top of the corn. And when Zeus, the lord of all, saw her, Hacha, hacha, hacha. <laughs> and to put it biblically, he knew her. <laughs> and the fruit of their union was Persephone, the apple of her mother's eye. For if Demeter's hair was like the earth, Persephone's was as black as the night. And if Demeter's skin was as soft as the top of the corn, Persephone's was as soft as a windless day. And if her mother's eyes were like pools of water, Persephone's were like coals that grew for thousands of years in that earth. And how the mother loved the daughter and she never allowed her out of her sight. And as Persephone grew, her beauty lighted the afternoon and <laughs> broke through the crust of the earth so that Hades, the lord of the dead, one day perceived that light. Oh. Oh, if, 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 if she can bring light here, imagine what she's like in the flesh. This one I gotta have. But when Hades looked carefully, he saw that the mother never took her eyes off the daughter. And so he waited and waited for his moment. Now, today, my daughter, you've learned how to sing out the sun. You've learned how to bring the riches from the earth. Now that it is fall and the corn is at its highest, I will teach you the dance to bring on the fall rain. But not here among the corn. Watch, I'll go to the open field. And when Demeter turned, Hades saw his chance. And he got into his chariot with six coal-black steeds, flame rushing from their nostrils. They cracked through the surface of the earth that opened. He came, he grabbed Persephone in his hairy arms, and back through that crust which closed over them. So that a moment later when the mother turned around to look for Persephone. Persephone? Son, where is she? I was looking the other way. Wind? Where is my daughter? I was blowing towards the north. Earth? I was looking towards you, Demeter. Persephone! And meanwhile, beneath the crust of the earth in the world of the dead, you will bring light to my world. You, you, this shall be your kingdom, Persephone. My kingdom? Are you kidding? You call this a color pattern? Black, white, black, white, a few grays? <laughs> I want to go back to my mother. You will be queen of this kingdom. Here of a pomegranate. Are you kidding? You call that brunch? 
Now, I don't know if she knew or if it was just instinct, but if you eat of the fruit of the dead, you become as the dead. I'm not eating a thing. And she stayed beneath that earth. But Demeter, the mother, began to search for her daughter. Persephone! And she had no heart to call the sun to warm the earth. And she had no desire to sing out the warmth. And her feet felt too heavy to do the dance of the fall rain. And the earth grew dry and cold. And it gave no nourishment. And the human beings began to die. And they called out to the Lord of all, Zeus. Give the mother back her daughter. Oh, come on now. You know, Hades is just a boy. Boys will be boys. Let him have perse... We will all die. Give the mother back her daughter. Now, now. Zeus, what is the Lord of all without those to worship him? Just a statue. Ah, uh, well, since you put it that way. Um, Hades! Hades! Yes? Zeus? Hades, you must return the girl to her mother. I don't wanna. You must. Oh, come on, who do you think you are, my big brother? Yes? Oh, you always pull rank on me this way. Return her. I must. And thank goodness, I couldn't have stayed here another minute. Well, you must be hungry. And in this moment of joy, Hades offered Persephone a pomegranate. And without thinking, the girl grabbed it and took a bite. And after she'd swallowed the meat from around the seeds, four came from her mouth into the palm of Hades. Four. Four. That means you will come back to me for four months out of every year. Oh, darn. Now, let us go back to your mother. And he grabbed her, put her in the chariot. They cracked through the crust of the earth. He set her down and went back beneath that place. And with the girl on one side of the globe and the mother on her other, they called to each other. Persephone, Mother Demeter, Persephone, Demeter. And as they ran across the face of the earth, in their wake, the planet warmed and grew fertile, and sun came out in the sky and rains came from the heavens until they embraced my daughter, Mother. And summer came to our planet again. But every year, for those four months when Persephone must return to the world of the dead, her mother still wanders. And that's when cold covers this place like a blanket of death. Judith Black from Marblehead, Massachusetts, with the tale of Persephone and Demeter. Thanks for your storytelling, Judith. 
My pleasure. Just ahead, we head to the vast snowy wastes of the Siberian tundra for another myth of a strong and fierce god and the need to please him. The old man sat in his hut, and he realized that Keturah, Lord of the Wind, was angry. He realized that if the Lord of the Wind was not appeased, his people would perish. And so he looked at his elder daughter and said, Daughter, you must go to Kotura and marry him. That's the only way to appease the winds. Needless to say, it doesn't go well. To hear what does happen, stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and this is our annual trip to the world of myth, fable, imagination, and stories told around the fire and handed down over generations to while away the long, oh so long winter evenings around the time of the solstice. We just heard one of the oldest and most familiar of tales, the Greek story of how winter came to the world. And our next fable also has an icy theme. We're returning to a favorite show from our archives that was recorded live and celebrates this season. Our next storyteller is a history buff with a passion for folklore. Please welcome Guy Peartree. How do you do, Steve? Good. You know, I understand that one of your regular gigs is playing a 19th century African-American, or a couple of them, really, at a living history museum here in Massachusetts called Old Sturbridge Village. That's correct. Yes, they hired me to tell stories from the 1830s. So who do you play? Uh, One of the characters is Peter Clark, and the other character is William Brown from Providence. He's well known because he wrote an autobiography detailing um, how his master um, uh, had slaves, sold slaves. His name was Moses Brown, and that Moses Brown became an abolitionist. Ah. He converted. He converted. Yes. But it's not the slavery of people we're talking about right now. It's going to be the slavery of wintertime. The the slavery of winter. Under all that wind and snow. The cold grips. And you, you have a story for us, right? Yes, it's called Keturah, Lord of the Winds from the nomadic tribe, the Nanets of Siberia. Okay, well, let's hear it then. All right. Kotura, Lord of the Winds. The cold north winds blew across the tundra. Their freezing winds bit into the land. The old man sat in his hut, and he realized that Kotura, Lord of the Wind, was angry. He realized that if the Lord of the Wind was not appeased, his people would perish. And so he looked at his elder daughter and said, Daughter, you must go to Kotura and marry him. That's the only way to appease the winds. But father, how will I find him? Follow my instructions. Take your sled into the north wind. Go all the way up to the top of a hill. A little bird will come and perch itself on your shoulder. Stroke that bird gently. Take your sled all the way down to the bottom where Kotura lives. 
enter the tent and wait for him to come in and follow his instructions exactly. Well, the girl went out into the wind. She took her sled all the way up to the top of a hill. A little bird came to perch on her shoulder, but she shooed the bird away. Then she took her sled all the way down to where Kotura lives. She went inside, but she didn't wait. She ate the meat and lay down and slept. Kotura entered. A very strong, handsome man he was. What are you doing here? She woke up. I, I've been sent by my father so, so that you, you will bring back the winds and, and I will marry you. Well, follow my instructions exactly. Take this meat to the old woman who lives in the snow, then bring back her gift. Then I will have hides here waiting and you will sew them and make them into a coat and boots for me. Well, the girl went out into the snow, but she had no idea where the old woman lived. So she threw the meat to the side, and then she returned with an empty dish. She sat down immediately to sew the coat and to make the boots. But when Kotura came back, nothing was done to his specification. The boots were not done, the coats were not done, and so he got angry and he blew her into the wind. And she landed in the snow. The howling winds continued over the Nanette's camp, and the father knew that his eldest daughter had not succeeded. So he said to his second daughter, I want you to go and do what my first daughter has not been able to do. I want you to marry the Lord of the wind, and I want him to bring back the winds. So the second daughter as well went out into the snow, but she did not heed her father's words, and she shooed the bird away. And when she got down to the very bottom of the hill, she went into the tent of Kotura, and she ate the meat and fell asleep. And likewise, she didn't follow his instructions. She went and took the meat and threw it into the snow and came back and did a very unpleasant job with, with, with the hides. And so Kotura was angry again, and he blew her into the snow. And again, the old man realized that his second daughter had not succeeded. So he went to the third daughter and he said, my third daughter, please listen. It is up to you to save our people. Go and marry Kotura, follow my instructions exactly. So the third daughter went out into the wind. She rode her sled up to the top of a hill. The little bird came, perched itself on her shoulder and she stroked it gently. <coughs> Off she went down the hill. She came to the big tent and she went inside and she waited patiently. Kotura entered and he said, I see you have come here to marry me, haven't you? Yes, I have. Well, well, I want you to take this meat to the old woman who lives in the snow and bring it back with a gift inside. And then you will sew this coat that I want you to sew for me and these boots that I want you to sew for me with the hides that I have prepared here. I will come back at midnight. So the girl went out into the snow. She took the meat. Now she didn't know where to find the old woman, but the little bird came and showed her the way. She found herself in front of the old woman's hut and she knocked on the door. Out the old woman came. What do you want? Kotura has sent me. He has some meat for you. All right, dear. She took the meat inside and she put something on the plate and gave it to her. The little bird showed her how to get back to Kotura's tent. When she arrived at the tent, 
Kotura smiled and said, You're going to need those things. Those are the sewing tools for the coat and boots that I told you to make for me. I will be back at midnight. The girl set to work. She was working very hard. She knew it was going to be impossible to make a coat and boots by midnight. But that old woman came in, and she said, Dear, look, there's something in my eye. Would you please get it out for me? She went over to the old woman, and she got the thing out of the old woman's eye. And the old woman said, Dear, would you look into my ear? There's something in there that you should see. And to her surprise, there was a maiden in there. Take her hand, dear, and bring her out. The girl took the maiden's hand, and she came out of the old woman's ear. And another girl came out, and another, and another. Altogether, there were four young maidens, and they set about making the coat and boots for Kotura. They worked very, very easily, and they made a perfect coat and boots for Kotura, Lord of the Wind. They jumped back into her ear, and the old woman, she slowly went out of the tent, saying, You're a very nice girl, a very wise and gentle girl. Kotura came back and saw that his coat and his boots were made to perfection, and he laughed, and he smiled, and he said, Now we will be married. And so that day, Kotura, the lord of the winds, pulled back the winds. The old man came out of his tent. He looked up at the sky, and he smiled because he knew his third daughter had succeeded. Kotura had taken back the winds. He had been appeased, and his people were saved. Thank you. That's Guy Peartree with Keturah, Lord of the Wind. Now, both you and Judith Black told us very different stories, but I wonder if, if you see any parallels between them. You Guy? should always subcontract your leather work. <laughs> <laughs> we should always have maidens inside our ears. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I think there is a gentle relationship uh, in that the fact that women are, are both part of the story, young women whose beauty or their effectiveness is related to a, uh, uh, an element of nature. So on the surface, yes, there is a relationship between the two stories. Well, and that both women represent fertility. I mean, the old woman who mm -hmm. lived in, you know, the old woman of the woods, however she was referred, and Demeter are both what give us life. Um, and also the need for some kind of sacrifice you know, or knowledge of the deity in order to negotiate your relationship. But obviously where they're both placed determines an enormous amount uh, about the folklore around them, you know, that the cold is the determining mm -hmm. factor in Siberia and so that people relate to the wind. And then the loss of the fertility in Greece is what the story developed around because that's what caused them wonder and, and terror. Mm -hmm. And the yes. lesson here for us is that we have to redeem ourselves to escape winter. Well, I think you should respect nature. 
whether it's in the form of, of Demeter or the form of Keturah. Things have to be done so that nature receives her due or his due, depending on who you are. Right. And given that, to know that there'll be a full cycle. Yes. A very funny thing happens. Whenever you tell these stories, children always say, is this a story or is this what really happened? And you're faced with the idea of what's the difference between science and folklore? I'm not sure. <laughs> Thank you both. Guy Peartree and Judith Black. The concept of night and day is the subject of our next story. It's the tale of an ant and a bear who have different ideas on how to divide the night from the day. Our storyteller is Dovey Thomason, a Lakota, Kiowa, Apache storyteller and cultural educator based in Virginia. Her latest recording is called Lessons from the Animal People. Welcome, Dovey Thomason. Now, your story is Ant Dances for Light. Is this a Lakota or a Kiowa story? It was a story told to me by my Kiowa Apache grandmother, but she would borrow stories from Nova Scotia or the Yukon. To me, it's just Grandma's story. Well, let's hear it then. In the beginning times, the earth was not as we know it today, for it was an earth of darkness. Dark and cold cover this earth in all directions, and it was a difficult earth for the animals who lived upon her. In the darkness, they could not see each other. So it was those animals with eyes that could see in the dark, those animals who were sharp of tooth and claw who did well on this earth, and the others, they were the hunted. That was their place. They were the meat, and they were afraid in this dark world. They hid, they ran, but they could not spend their lives hiding and running. They wanted something else. They wanted a difference in this earth, but they could imagine nothing but the darkness that was their world. There were other problems. In this world of darkness, the animals crashed into each other, stepped on each other, tangled with each other. Oof! Out! Ow! Ooh, who's on my paw? Who's that? An antler? Get that antler. Who did that? That hurt? Out! Who did it? Out! Uh. Soon, they were arguing. There was trouble with the planet. There were trouble with the animals who lived in this place. They fought who is doing what to who, whose sharp toe, whose claw was that, and there was trouble, trouble in this dark place. There had to be another way, but they could not conceive of it. So they went to the maker of this place. They went to the maker and asked that he could rethink this creation. Something was missing. They wanted something. They did not know what. The maker looked at them. You cannot imagine. There is something else. You cannot imagine it. It is called light. It will bring warmth. You will be able to see. Oh, to some of the animals, this sounded so good. The birds, having wings, knew that they, they could do something with them if they could but see. This world of light, it sounded good to them. But then the great animals, the hunters stood. It was Bear who spoke for them. I want no light. I want the dark. I like the night. 
And now the animals began arguing again. The birds spoke out for light. We want to fly. We want this light. We want the light. But other birds turned on their own. We don't want it. We like the dark. It was Owl and Nighthawk, those hunters of the night. They were happy with the earth as it was. And soon, all of the creatures of this earth were arguing before their very maker. He raised his hands. There must be a solution. An earth of light, an earth of dark. And suddenly a little voice spoke out before him. It was Ant. Could, could there not be dark and light? I can almost imagine color. Color we would see in light. There would be goodness in both dark and light. Could we not have both? Bear looked down at her. I don't want it. I don't like it. I don't want to see it. I like dark. And before the argument could erupt again, the maker raised his hands and said, This must be settled fairly. We will settle this, as many things have been settled, with a dance contest. <laughs> there will be dancing, and the winner, the one who creates the greatest, strongest dance, the one who stands at the end of the dance, that is the way it will be. Bear, you will dance for dark. And Bear pulled himself up tall. And I see none who truly want an earth of only light. And they did not. They could not imagine this. What if they changed for something much worse? An ant. Will you dance for dark and light? And she agreed. And so all the animals began to prepare for this great contest. They prepared the food for each contest is ended with feasting, where all hard feeling is lost in the joy of the feast. And Bear prepared to dance as he prepares to do everything. He ate and ate and ate. He ate so much the animals preparing for the feast thought there would be none left for the feasting. He ate and ate. Well, Aunt prepared in a different way. She sat and folded her hands. She prayed. She fasted. She sipped only of pure water. Bear had eaten enough. He was ready to dance. He stood. The animals looked up at him. He was big. He was strong. He took his first step. I am Bear. I dance for night. I want the dark. I want no light. I am Bear. I dance for night. And his dance was strong. The animals watched and thought, Oh, we are going to live in darkness. And then it was Ant's turn. She stood. They looked at her tiny before them. She pulled her belt tight, and she began to dance. She danced for dark. She danced for light. She danced for day. She danced for night. She danced for peace among all people, and that everyone would get what they need. And then she sat, and the animals thought, that was different, but it was strong. It was beautiful, it was graceful, but then Bear stood up. He had been eating all this time, and he was huge. I am Bear. The earth shook under his feet, and the animals shook, thinking of the darkness that would be their home forever. I dance for night. I want the dark, I want no light. I am Bear. I dance for night. Ant had been fasting. Ant had been praying. She stood. She was light-headed and dizzy. She tightened her belt against her hunger, and she danced. She danced for dark. She danced for light. She danced for day. She danced for night. She danced for peace among all people, 
and that everyone would get what they need. And the people smiled. It was good, this dance. It was strong, this dance. Perhaps it could be as she was dancing, as she was praying, but then Bear stood. He'd been eating still more. His belly was like a boulder in front of him. I am Bear. (laughs) And he fell forward with a great crash and soon was snoring. The animals cheered. The earth was going to change. Ant had won. She didn't need to dance again, but she did. She danced for dark. She danced for light. She danced for days. She danced for night. She danced for peace among all people and that everyone would get what they need. Now, when we see the ants today, the ones I grew up with, their bodies are black and red, the color of the night and the colors we can only see in light. And we all notice their tiny waists. W. Thomason, the story you just told us, Ant Dances for Light, this just isn't about how day and night were divided, is it? But it's a lesson on moderation? The lessons for the stories I've been told are what we each take away from them. For me, it's a story about the power of small things and that each of us have our own needs and that somehow we have to accommodate those and respect them. Well, thank you. down the real changes in how animals adapt to these cold, short, midwinter days. Things like fish that live in ponds really can't migrate, or a lot of small aquatic uh, invertebrates or toads and things, uh, they have the biggest problem they face is how to avoid freezing, since they really can't go anywhere. They produce a certain chemical in their blood called glycerol, which is much like antifreeze. And what it does is it lowers the freezing temperature of their body tissues, which is composed primarily of water. And by having antifreeze or this glycerol in their body, their cells won't burst, much like you put uh, antifreeze in your car radiator so your uh, radiator fluid doesn't freeze over. Antifreeze, blubber, hibernation, and other winter strategies, and playing music to entertain the animals. That's all ahead, so keep listening to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We return now to the final segment of our Encore presentation, a live program recorded at WGBH Boston. We welcomed zoologist Donna Fernandez, now president of the Buffalo Zoo. Donna, you're a zoologist. Tell me, do ants and bears really dance? Well, I must admit, ants and bears aren't known for their dancing abilities as much as some other species. Honeybees dance to communicate food to other members of their hive, and there are very elaborate courtship dances in a number of bird species, and even scorpions do somewhat of a waltz uh, during mating. So there are species who are better uh, dancers than bears and ants. But they do get ready for the cold, dark winter. Oh, absolutely. What happens? 
Well, in response to decreasing uh, day length or shortening days and colder temperatures, animals in this area adopt one of three strategies. They can migrate, just to leave the area completely, hibernate, or they can develop certain uh, characteristics that make them uh, able to resist the cold much better. Mm, let's start with hibernation. I want to try that right now. In fact, I really wish I could have stayed in bed this morning. I want to sleep longer. Uh, so in honor of our bear, uh, maybe we could talk about that. Right. In, in the winter, I think all of us hate getting out of bed. It's often still dark out. That cold floor to put your feet on in the morning isn't very comfortable. We may sleep a little longer, but bears really sleep uh, the whole winter away. They spend about 100 days in their den without eating anything in a sort of semi-sleeping state. And not only do they not eat, but they lower their body temperature by several degrees, and um, their metabolic rate decreases to about half the normal rate. Wow. So why do this? I mean, what's the advantage of such changes? Well, by lowering your body temperature and your metabolic rate, you can get by with a lot fewer calories, so they can uh, burn up that stored fat much more slowly. And this is the only way they can survive without eating, because there really isn't much to eat for a bear during the winter months. Uh-huh. It's a diet plan, in other words. Sort of, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, are they really hibernating? I mean, if you walk, I mean, you're not supposed to go near a, a, a hibernating bear, right? Right. Um, they are still capable of a certain amount of coordinated uh, body movement. So if you do disturb a sleeping bear, they will wake up and they can retreat or attack. Um, there are other animals which are what are called true hibernators or deep hibernators. And they go into a completely comatose state. Uh, things like a lot of our rodents from around here, uh, ground squirrels, uh, chipmunks, prairie dogs, those kinds of things, uh, they'll lower their uh, body temperature just to, to just a few degrees above freezing. So if you find one, it will be very cold to the touch. And their metabolic rate is about 10% of normal rate. Something like the Arctic ground squirrel, the uh, Heart rate goes from about 100 to 200 beats per minute to 10 to 20 beats per minute. And breathing goes from about 100 breaths per minute down to 4 breaths per minute. So they're in a very uh, slumber-like, slow, frozen state. Of course, now, this time of year, I do like to sleep late, but I even prefer to go, like, south, you know, Florida, Caribbean, you know, something like that. It's even better, right? Well, migration's a very common strategy, uh, particularly among our birds. Uh, in this uh, part of the world, in the United States and Canada, fully two-thirds of the birds that uh, breed here migrate south for the winter, either to our southern states, Mexico, or Central or South America. And probably some of the most remarkable things are the distances that they travel. For example? Well, the Arctic tern is, is the most famous. Um, they breed in the Arctic Circle. Uh, during the summer months, and then when winter approaches, they fly all the way down to Antarctica, um, and then back again in the spring. It's a round trip of 22,000 miles. Uh, by doing this, they actually spend about nine months of their time in perpetual light. So they're probably the one animal that would have argued on the case of light in that previous story. <laughs> they, li they like a lot of light. Um, but even things as small as the monarch butterfly, which weighs about one one-hundredth of an ounce, uh, they've been uh, tagged in Canada and found to fly all the way down to Mexico for the wintering site, a distance of about 2,000 miles. Now, aside from the birds and his butterflies, who else likes to migrate in the animal kingdom? Um, well, certain bats will migrate, and some of our larger mammals like caribou or reindeer. And in the past, we had huge herds of bison or American buffalo, and they used to migrate great distances. And probably a very well-known uh, group is whales who will migrate from north to south in the winter. Now, you mentioned that some animals, I mean, those who don't sleep or those who, who don't catch a jet south, develop some sort of resistance. 
Right. Things like fish that live in ponds really can't migrate, or a lot of small aquatic uh, invertebrates or toads and things. Uh, they have the biggest problem they face is how to avoid freezing, since they really can't go anywhere. Um, they produce a certain chemical in their blood called glycerol, which is much like antifreeze. And what it does is it lowers the freezing temperature of their body tissues, which is composed primarily of water. And by having antifreeze or this glycerol in their body, their cells won't burst, much like you put uh, antifreeze in your car radiator so your uh, radiator fluid doesn't freeze over. And finally, like uh, so many of us, I guess that the animals really do uh, pack it on in the winter. They don't have the diaplan of the bear, though. Right. Um, another strategy is uh, better insulation. You can do that through a thicker fur coat, which a lot of mammals do get a thicker um, winter coat. Or you can do it by a thicker layer of fat, which provides insulation. And so aquatic mammals, which don't have much fur, get that layer of blubber. Uh, I think in humans, though, we gain weight not because we want greater insulation as we're trying to, um, we, we're escaping the release of having to look good in a bathing suit. So I think we allow ourselves to get a little heavier in the winter because we don't have to look so good anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Donna Fernandez is Associate Curator for the Wildlife Conservation Society in New York City. Donna, I want you to stick around while we talk to Stan Strickland, who's been making the music here for us today. And he's also been trying to spread his message to the animal kingdom. I mean, literally. Now, you used to work at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. You're not allowed to feed the animals there, but I understand, Stan, you have been playing to the animals. How did that gig come about? Colin Kelly, who works at the zoo, had this idea that the animals needed to have a little entertainment, something to break up the boredom at looking, from looking at all these silly people. <laughs> so... Uh, she started a series of uh, music performances, and I was asked to do one. Hmm. So how did the animals respond to all this? Well, it's kind of interesting. You know, you don't really know what an animal is thinking. You have to kind of project. Um, I played for three different animals. The first was uh, zebras. Can you show me what you, what you played for the zebras? Well, I had uh, my trusty soprano saxophone, and in the very beginning... It was a photo shoot to sort of give some publicity. So we just pretended to play. I was blowing air, sort of like a... And just to make sure they wouldn't get too spooked out. But they seemed to not mind our being there, so we started playing a little bit, a little bit like a... That's then we cool. went over to um, and met Kobe. You must know about Kobe. Oh, the gorilla. I've met yeah. him and Kiki, too, there. And Kiki. Kobe is really pretty cool. At first, uh, Kobe was back somewhere. We couldn't see him. And Kiki was out sort of bathing in the sun. So I gave out a big call and a saxophone to see if I could get his attention, like... Kobe kind of walks out like, yo, what's up, man? <laughs> <laughs> really? And um, 
Uh, one thing I learned, though, about uh, at least uh, the gorillas is that one of their ways of communicating is by throwing things, right? <laughs> and they throw whatever is around. So there are two areas at the Franklin Park Zoo for the gorillas. The outside area, there's some branches and some things, and uh, occasionally Kobe, Kobe would throw some branches. But when we went inside, the other male gorilla was... Vip. Vip. Yeah. Vip looks kind of mean to me. But yeah, he throws something else. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was there uh, two times with uh, musician friends, Bob Moses, a drummer, and a second time with uh, Wesley Worth. So Wesley and I had seen uh, Kubi throw stuff. So when we went inside, Fip uh, Fip was like standing there, and he reached down to grab something to throw. And Wesley and I knew it was coming, so we kind of like kind of ducked a little bit. And unfortunately, some of the other people in the audience didn't quite know what was happening. And as Fip sort of tossed a little gorilla poop out, uh, it kind of splattered on a little girl's leg, and that was kind of yucky. Sort of, a, sort of a sour note, huh? Yeah, yeah. Is there a tune that they seem to like? Oh, yeah, so we kind of played something uh, like this for uh, Kubi. It was a great concert for them. Donna, is there any way to tell whether the animals really like the music that Stan was playing? Well, I think probably the most positive sign is that the animals generally approached the uh, exhibit barriers to try to get as close to the musicians as possible. It's still hard to decide whether that's just a novel s uh, situation or novel noise and they're curious or whether they actually like it. But if the musicians continue to come and the novelty wears off, yet they uh, still approach the barriers, I think it suggests that they really do enjoy the music. Well, thanks for playing what you did for the animals, Stan. I'm wondering if you could play something for us now. I think it'd be appropriate for us to honor the winter spirits uh, and call for the return of the sun, huh? Okay, for you human animals. We're going to do a, an African, a West African welcoming song. And this song is to help us welcome the sun back. So we want everyone to sing with us, okay? It's called Fanga Alafia. Fanga alafea, ashe ashe. Afanga alafea, ashe ashe. Fanga alafea, ashe ashe. Afanga alafea, ashe ashe. And a what? 
on Earth Winter Solstice Special was recorded live at WGBH Boston. It was directed by Margot Stage and recorded and mixed by Jim Donahue. I'd like to thank all our guests, and you can learn more about them at our website, LOE.org. And you can hear this program anytime at our website. Again, that's LOE.org. And don't forget to like us on Facebook at PRI's Living on Earth. Our crew for the live recording included Chris Ballman, Kim Modelewski, and George Holmesy. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our technical director is Jeff Turton. Our managing producer is Helen Palmer. I'm Steve Kerwood. And happy holidays from all of us here at Living on Earth. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making on the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.